Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and howdy, partner. I'm a small town drifter from America. Uh, that was, I don't know what that voice was, but I like it. Um, in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1984. And in this episode, we are returning to the Cannes Film Festival to talk about the movie that won the Palme d'Or, which is the top prize at Cannes. And that is Vim Vender's Paris, Texas which does feature a drifter in America. Although I don't think he talks like that, Jason. Uh, <laughs> he doesn't talk like that. I just imagine them, you know, uh, planning this movie and, you know, this is what they think he, a small town drifter in America would sound like. So we're traveling the roads of Texas, where I'm from. Here's my accent, partner. <laughs> I mean, no, nobody has a like a Texas accent in this movie. So the story has an accent, Josh. Okay. That's a, that's an interesting observation. Paris, um, Texas, which does take place partially in Texas, but not entirely in Texas, but never in Paris, Texas, never in Paris, Texas. Paris, Texas is sort of like a, a, an idea in this movie that the characters are striving for rather yeah. than a place that they actually go. Yeah, talk um, about low uh, expectations. You're striving for Paris, Texas. Yeesh. Well, it's symbolic. It's symbolic of a, a place to escape to and to start over um, that, of course, no one ever actually gets to in this movie. Right. I think Robert Durst murdered three people there. <laughs> Just maligning. It's a real place, you know. <laughs> Just tell uh, you. Most of our downloads are from there, actually. There you go. Come on. Don't, don't, don't. Howdy, do friends in Paris, Texas. <laughs> this accent is like, is, is evolving in real time here. Um, well, I gotta, you know. I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know either. Vim Benders, uh, director of this film, German filmmaker, already highly acclaimed, but this was certainly, I think still maybe his, if not his most famous and most acclaimed film right up there at the top, written by, I mean, quite a creative team on this, uh, playwright Sam Shepard, who wrote sort of the original screenplay that was also then adapted. It, it, the, the writing credits are unclear to me in this movie, but uh, L.M. Kit Carson, who's another very well-known screenwriter, also worked on the writing of this film. And Harry, Harry Dean Stanton, plays the main drifter. And of course, that is Jason's impeccable impression of Harry <laughs> no, Dean No, no, I'm not that... knocking Harry Dean Stanton. So. As I said, I'm knocking the concept of it. Okay, of it, so. yes. Uh, uh, Dean Stockwell, they play brothers. And Nastasha Kinski as well in, in this film. And uh, Aurora Clement, I think is her name, who plays the uh, wife of Dean Stockwell's character. And it's about America. And maybe I'm getting that Jason feels like it's not a very credible representation of America. Yeah, man. It's like, let's go eat hamburgers and shoot our guns. You know, it, <laughs> it felt like, and that's, what's weird because, you know, as you said, Sam Shepard basically wrote it. What I understood from the writing process is part of it was based on his book, you know, motel stories, I think. Right. Yeah, I think initially, but I don't know how much of that actually ended up in the final film. Yeah, so he was so part of it was that Motel Chronicles, 
And then Shepard was watching the performances to like write where the story would go, which I think is fascinating. But then he signed on to another project and left. So LM Kid Carson took over and that's kind of how they finished the script. I just felt like it felt like maybe just a stereotype of America more than America to me. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's certainly an outsider's view of America. Vim Vendors, again, who's who's German, although he had been living in America for, I think, five years uh, at the point where he made this movie. So he didn't just fly in and get a quick impression. Um, and as but, we know from the last episode, living in America, number four on the billboard charts. Thank you, Dan Hartman. That's important stuff. But yeah, he offers an outsider's perspective. It's a European production um, with a number of European actors in addition to the American uh, stars for with Harry Dan, Dean Stanton and Dean Stockwell. I, I, I think it's I think it's a worthwhile perspective, um, even if it may be skewed. And also, I don't think anyone shoots a gun in this movie. So I don't know where you got that. I'm writing other parts of it. Um, but it is interesting that process. They shot the movie in order and they're sort of like writing it almost improvisationally to, to see where the story goes and watching this movie. I think you can get a sense of that. It feels like almost like a, an exploration as the story is progressing, progressing, maybe not always in the best way, but it was highly acclaimed and successful at the time that it premiered. It won three awards at the Cannes Film Festival. In addition to the Palme d'Or, it won two other juried awards, the Fipresky Prize, which is from a, an organization of film critics, and the prize of the Ecumenical Jury, which is from an organization of clergy. So even the religious people liked it. Um, it eventually grossed, and I don't know what these figures are exactly, if this is just the US or worldwide, uh, 2.2 million on a budget of 1.8 million, which is not a huge success, but this is not the kind of movie that's ever going to be a huge success. Interestingly, uh, sort of related to Jason's uh, thought that this is maybe not an American perspective, it was actually nominated for the Golden Globe for Best Foreign Film, which is odd. Yeah, that's um, weird. I don't hmm. know how that works. I mean, I assume at the time the rules were not about what language the movie was in, but maybe what what country financed the production. And this is a, a French-German co-production. It wasn't made by an American Yeah, studio. but it's all in English and all takes place in America. So I don't yeah. see how that, you know, fits. So. It is very strange, but it was nominated there. Uh, it was also nominated for four BAFTAs and Vim Vendors won the BAFTA for Best Director. Um, and, and certainly as time has gone on, I mean, I think this movie is considered like a classic straight up, it seems like. It's no streets of fire. <laughs> no, it isn't. But maybe in a weird way, both this and streets of fire are interested in sort of a mythological idea of what is America. Look at you. Look at you film criticing it up. How are you not a professor at a college right now? Oh, I don't know. Um, Roger Ebert, uh, also a film critic, was a huge fan. He loved this movie. Actually, it was interesting because some of the reviews that I found from the time were a little mixed, uh, even though now it's considered this great classic. But Roger Ebert was all in from the beginning. He said, Paris, Texas is more concerned with exploring emotions than with telling a story. This isn't a movie about missing persons, but about missing feelings. The images in the film show people framed by the vast, impersonal forms of modern architecture. The cities seem as empty as the desert did in the opening sequence. And yet this film is not the standard attack on American alienation. 
It seems fascinated by America, by our music, by the size of our cities, and a land so big that a man like the Harry Dean Stanton character might easily get misplaced. Yes. For a movie not about missing people, it has two missing people in there. So I disagree with that. Um, I get the missing feelings part, but it's because the people are missing that the feelings are missing. Um, Right. I mean, I don't think he's saying that it's not literally about missing people. I think he's saying that thematically that's what it's concerned with. And I'm saying the motor doesn't run without the gas, (laughs) baby. So and, you know, you said uh, Ebert loved it. He had a number two. For 1984 top 10 list at the end of the year number two yeah that's a that's a pretty good pretty good placement there and i think um whether you're into the structure of this movie or not i think you have to agree that it looks amazing as he says that the yeah. images yeah in this film and, and not just the, that it looks the way he places sound against the scenery like the kind of desert sounds or the city sounds like really really effective yeah, I, I agree. I think that you can see this in just the the, the shot compositions, the way that the, they're blocked, you know, the way that he uh, places the actors in the frame is all really impressive. So Vincent Canby in the New York Times was less impressed. He said, Paris, Texas begins so beautifully and so laconically that when about three quarters of the way through, it begins to talk more and say less, the great temptation is to yell at it to shut up. If it were a hitchhiker, you'd stop the car and tell it to get out. The film is wonderful and funny and full of real emotions as it deals the, as it details the means by which Travis and the boy become reconciled. Then it goes flying out the car window when father and son decide to take off for Texas in search of Jane, Hunter's long-lost mother. Everything suddenly becomes too explicit and too symbolic. It's not giving anything away to reveal that what the movie, rather tardily, seems to be about is the difficulty in communication between men and women, nor that the sequences in which this is demonstrated are awful. And I don't know if I would go so far as to say awful, but I definitely like this movie less as it went on. That's where it lost me, Josh, when they went on this road trip to Texas. I started questioning every decision that every character made at that point, and it seemed like none of these decisions were based in logic. Um, and I just I just stopped buying it. Yeah, I mean, I think you can argue that these characters are not logical people. And therefore, the fact that they make illogical decisions makes sense from uh, from the perspective of the audience. But it is very frustrating. I mean, you can argue that about Travis and about Jane, but you can't argue that about the Dean Stockwell and uh, Aurea, Aurora Clement, the Anne and Walt character, you know, so. That's that's true. Although I think they're kind of left in a position in that in that last uh, third of the movie where really they're, they're they don't have any options for what to do. Maybe legally they don't. I just can't see them saying like, you know, she's basically raised this kid and then Travis, who's been missing for four years, shows up and. Certainly he should have a relationship with his son, but when they go on this trip, she's just like, you come back, turn the car around. All right, bye. You know, like there's no real effort to stop them on the trip, which is that that's where it started to lose me. Yeah. And those characters, I mean, the movie starts out and what I kind of thought it would be is, is this story between the two brothers, Dean Stockwell and Harry Dean Stanton. And then as the movie goes on, his character, Dean Stockwell's character and his wife, they kind of just exit the film and are never seen again. And that's a bit frustrating. And again, maybe it's it's part of that process where they're writing the film as they're shooting it and they've decided that they're 
interest as filmmakers has shifted. And so they leave these other characters behind. Well, yeah, they built, but they built so much into the relationship between the two brothers. And then also um, with Anne's kind of mothering of uh, Hunter that it's really left uh, unsatisfying where they just kind of disappear out of it. I agree. I'm just saying I can kind of see what the perspective was on the part of the filmmakers and why they took it in that direction. Sure. Finally, Holly Willis in Variety said, Paris, Texas is a road movie, an odyssey, if you will. It's a man's journey to self-recognition, following the ancient formula that has its fulfillment when the awaited deed is done, with or without moral implication. In this case, a young boy of eight is reunited with his mother. That part of the tale is the least interesting, however. What Vendors is apparently trying to say is that alienation and existential angst are just about the same on both sides of the Atlantic. Paris, Texas, as even the title hints, equals Europe, USA. It's indeed a beautiful film, one that will surely convince doubters that Robbie Muller is one of the cinema's best cameramen. He gives the story a surface polish that hints of Edward Hopper and Georgia O'Keeffe Americana paintings. Some images are positively breathtaking. And so I think I'm with her there, that it looks great and the story goes in the least interesting direction. I agree too. It made me want to see more of Robbie Muller's work and not more of Inventor's work, even though I know the two collaborated on a lot together and some of their finest work is together. But I thought he was the real star of this thing um, from a technical standpoint. Yeah, it does. It looks it looks beautiful. And I think it's very evocative in that it, it captures that sense of Americana just in the way you look at the images without um, without any of the story and without the characters talking, and which is why it's almost a better movie when the characters are not talking, as as Vincent Canby says as well. So yeah, and I mean, it, but it is such an abrupt shift, you know, not just from not talking to talking, but also from who the relationships focus on. It just there was a lot of just um, kind of hard hard turns there. Yes, that's true, and and again, I think maybe that speaks to the way that it was created that they start telling one kind of story. And then as they see the actors and see what's unfolding, they, they shift what kind of story it becomes. So um, an interesting, if perhaps not fully successful way to work. Did you want to have any, uh, add any other background info on this? Well, I mean, you know, you got to talk about the soundtrack, Ry Cooter, again, um, really just probably, I mean, as much as I loved, um, Streets of Fire. I think this work is even more effective, you know, with that kind of Texas, uh, so that kind of twangy sound and the Blind Willie Johnson song, Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground. And uh, he, he had this whole thing about how Vin Vendors like was recording desert tones and like he equated the tone to like an E flat. So he wrote the score in E flat, which sounds pretty genius to me. I'd love Dave's opinion on that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I, I didn't, I was not aware of that, but that is such an interesting thing to try to blend those two things together. Um, and I could see how that, you know, just adds to a overall, like getting you into that, that environment that this movie takes place in. Yeah. I think again, the music going along with the imagery is, is very evocative and really gives you that sense of Americana that they're going for that those elements maybe succeed at better than the actual, the story and the, and the characters perhaps. Um, so yeah, right. Cooter between this and, and streets of fire, which we talked about in our last episode, that's, that's some versatility there. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, he's really shown. Um, and then, of course, later he went on and did Buena Vista Social Club. You know, he's probably one of the most um, versatile American artists in, you know, out here in America. I, I still think that that accent is uh, not the right impression to to give to this movie. But I've uh, already committed to it. Josh. You have committed to <laughs> it. And good for you for not backing down. Um I assume, Jason, that you had not seen this movie before. I had not, Josh, because, um, yeah, I just, I, I was looking forward to it. But, uh, yeah, obviously I didn't respond to it. Yeah, and I think I will get into this more. I think I maybe did a little more than you, but I was also not on this film's wavelength, it seems like. And I had not seen it either, although I certainly was familiar with it. And I, I've seen a couple other Vin Vendors movies, but I'm not super... Uh, familiar with his body of work, and and he's certainly gone on to make quite a few. Um, I mean, he's fairly prolific, and and he came up here. This was we should maybe note that um, this film was a big part of this sort of German new wave that was happening around the late seventies and early eighties with Wim Wenders and also Werner Herzog and Rainer Werner Fassbinder. And we of course talked about Herzog's film Strosek in our 1977 season. And I think this movie has a lot in common with Strosek. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I just feel like that's a much more, as wild as that movie was, I believe that movie so much more than this one. Okay, that's that's an interesting perspective. I'm not, I don't know if I quite agree on that part, but um, I think they're both these movies made by German filmmakers who are fascinated with America and are are giving their own kind of, filtered impressions of what they think America well, is. Well, not just America, right? You time period, it's 84 and then 77, right? So the Berlin Wall was still up. And, you know, I mean, at least in this, we're in the middle of Reagan and, you know, rah-rah America while we're letting all the poor people fall through the cracks, you know? So it's an interesting time to definitely artistically represent anything in America. That is true. Uh, Dave, I, I guess I, I get the impression, um, you know, spoiler that, that Dave liked this movie a lot more than we did. And, but you had not seen this before, uh, recently, had you Dave? No, this was my first time seeing it. I, I knew it's uh reputation, but that's it. Yeah. Or are you familiar with Vim Vendor's, uh, other work at all? Not really. No, this was the one that, yeah. that I'd always heard of. This yeah. is the one. This is sort of the, the the iconic one that people usually would gravitate towards. Yeah, I was going to just ask how much. I mean, like, I know Ry Cooter because, you know, as a music fan, I know who he is and kind of that kind of real Americana vibe to his stuff. How much about Ry Cooter, you know, uh, did you listen to know anything about before we've kind of delved into his soundtrack work here? Yeah, not particularly that much for me. I don't know. What about you, Josh? No, I mean, I'm aware of his uh, reputation and I certainly had heard right. of him, but um, it's, and I like a lot of that Americana type music, but I just had not listened to any of his stuff. So yeah, it was quite an unexpected sort of back-to-back thing between this and Streets of Fire, which we hadn't planned, but, you know, mm-hmm. to get a lot of that Ry Cooter music. So that was, yeah, it was kind of a cool thing. So we'll uh, come back then in a moment and get more into our general thoughts on Paris, Texas. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we are talking about the Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or winner, Paris, Texas, from Vim Vendors. And, and we've gotten actually quite a bit into our general feelings on it. But I think, Jason, 
we can agree, unfortunately, that we were both a bit disappointed in this movie. Yeah, I mean, after the seven hour mark, I was just like, how is this thing still going? You know, <laughs> look, what it really comes down to, if I could sum it up, Josh, is not only did I not believe those decisions that the characters were making towards the end of the movie, but I didn't care at that point in time because it had gone on so long without um, bringing me back in. And like you said, there's so much beautiful stuff. And I think there's some really effective emotional stuff. Like when you see Travis, um, you know, the first time he tries to walk Hunter home from school and Hunter wants no part of it. So then you see this whole sequence of him walking on the other side of the street and, you know, they're kind of playing this game uh uh walking on the other side of the street together and they're mimicking each other and it's like really emotionally effective and beautifully shot like i mean master of the tracking shot right this is as good a tracking shot like uh as kind of anything from the 80s scorsese after hours comes to mind a lot but but yeah i just started losing interest you know an hour in and then by hour two i was just like man i don't i don't care anymore unfortunately yeah. I think as I was saying, I found this movie less engaging as it went on. And, you know, it starts out with the, the, the two brothers, Harry Dean Stanton and Dean Stockwell. And, and Travis, Harry Dean Stanton's character, is discovered in this small Texas town, is sort of wandering in the desert. And they don't know where he's been. And he's at that point, he's mute. He's not even saying anything. And they call up Walt, his brother, played by Dean Stockwell, who comes out to sort of rescue him. And they haven't seen each other in four years. And Walt thinks that maybe he was dead. Um, and I thought, not really knowing anything about what the plot of the movie was, I thought, oh, it's going to be about, about these brothers reconnecting as they travel through kind of the back roads of Texas. That's what I thought as well. And that's not really what it's about, although it is about that for a little bit. And I thought that was, uh, there was definitely some emotional investment in that. And you can see that Walt has kind of gone on. He's lived a very conventional life. You know, he's got this boring job where he puts up billboards and he's got a little house in the kind of a suburban area and he's got the wife. And meanwhile, Travis has been literally wandering in the desert. And, and so you wonder how are they going to reconnect? And, and then it shifts as soon as they travel back to LA and it becomes more about Travis reconnecting with his son, Hunter. And there's some nice stuff there, but I think even at that point, I was like, wait, where's Walt and what is he doing and why is what's going on with the brother relationship? And I, I felt like it just was, again, drifting further and further from what I cared about. Yeah, I agree. And Josh, the thing is, like Hunter, that character could have been a really good um, uh, plot device to kind of show the relationship, whether and especially like conflicts that could have arisen from it, you know, um, but uh, they were just he was just like, yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're his dad. You do whatever you want. Even though you haven't been here for four years, don't know what's really happened to you. You could be a psychopath, whatever you're that. Go ahead, do, do, do your thing. So, Yeah, I mean, and we never really, it seems, I mean, in, especially in that first part, it seems that Travis has some sort of mental illness or, or PTSD or something like that. And then he just gradually becomes more normal. And we never really understand what's wrong with him or or how that's changed or why. Yeah. So yeah, that was a little frustrating too. And I think it's fine. The idea that, Hey, this guy is your father. And even if he's kind of messed up and he's been gone for all this time, like he is your father and, and we want to allow you to have a relationship with him. But then again, those characters just disappear. The Walt care, Walt and Anne 
They are gone from the movie in the last, what, 30, 40 minutes or something like that. And it becomes all about tracking down Hunter's mother, Jane, Nastasha Kinski's character, who we've not seen at all up to this point, and also has been missing, also without a clear explanation of why. And the like climax of this movie is this extremely long monologue that Harry Dean Stanton delivers about his relationship, about Travis's relationship with Jane, which is not something I feel like that we've become at all invested in over the course of the movie, and is very Sam Shepardy. Um, you know, very mannered and feels like it should have been a play. Yeah, it feels like it should be delivered on stage. And and that was the point where I think I just kind of dropped out of the movie entirely. Although, I mean, I and I agree with you, but to to give credit where it's due, that kind of shot where their faces are against each other against the glass is really unique. She is striking, you know, in the 80s, Nastasha Kinski, just striking in a really effective performance. And this is, I think Harry Dean Stanton would say probably his greatest performance right so you know there's good things it's just that like you know we talk about how effective that first hour was but it almost makes me wonder had they trimmed that like because we do see them wandering in the desert for minutes you know could they have gotten that same effect in one scene and gotten to the story um in a in a quicker manner and i'm only saying that because the story turns like, had they stuck with what we thought the story was going to be, I was all in on that, just like you. But, yeah, after it turns, it's just, um, like I said, like, Anne's raised this kid, and then she's like, ah, I guess I guess not anymore, you know? You don't raise a kid for four or five years and then be like, well, the dad came back, and, you know, nobody knows what's happened to him for the last four years. Well, they'll sort it out, you know what I mean? It's just not how life works. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that that's her attitude. She's very upset when the kid is gone and we don't see what she does afterwards. Because yeah, we never does. see anything. Right, right. But that's not to say that we see her not caring. Like, we don't know what she's been doing because the movie doesn't care about sure, her anymore. Sure, sure. That's, that's fair, Josh. I agree. Um, but also, I don't know that... I mean, the movie is long. It's not seven hours long, as you uh, said. It is, But it is long. It's about two and a half hours I don't know that trimming it would have made it better, though, because so much of what the movie is about is about spending those long, slow moments with the characters. And a lot of those, I think, don't really work, but I don't know that they would be better if they were kind of chopped up. But I, 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 where I'm going to disagree with you is that's what half the movie is about. I mean, like if the whole movie was about that, I would, I would say, yes, yeah, stick with it. But it just made me miss it when it was gone. Yeah. Well, right. I think that's the thing. And I don't want those parts in the, those slow, uh, languorous parts in the first half of the movie, especially when it's just the two brothers. I didn't, wouldn't necessarily want to get rid of that. But it was interesting in the, the variety review that I quoted from Holly Willis. She saw the film at Cannes when it premiered, and she spends like half of her review speculating that it's going to be trimmed down for its U.S. release, which is something that never happened. But basically assuming that this movie is going to be slimmed down and made more palatable to a mainstream audience, which is not the case. Yeah, um, and I don't want that either. I just wanted the two and a half hours to be a worthwhile two and a half hours, not a really great first hour and then a descent into disappointment. Yeah, and I think my reaction was a little more even in that, in that I was less into the first part than you were, and I was less uh, frustrated with the second part than you were. I was just sort of at a <laughs> at an at an even like eh for most of the movie. Yeah. Um, although, again, certainly by that the the worst part I think is that long ass monologue at the end, and that's where the movie ends, which is 
you know, kind of leaves you in a certain place. Um, but the idea of what was going on, I was trying to be on board with and thinking of it as sort of like this character study about Travis and what he's gone through and whatever. And, but yeah, it just didn't, it didn't quite get there. And I feel like, cause I know Dave really liked this. Yeah. He could like, see him right. chomping we should at give the him bit. A, yeah. Give him a chance to defend this. Why did you, why did Go you love for this it, movie, Dave? Well, I think it's really interesting hearing all this stuff you guys are saying, because to me, the movie picks up in that second half. To, to me, I, it's the second half that I like so much. And I think part of the reason is I'm not as interested in the reconnecting with the brother and even so much as reconnecting with the son. To me, it's the central question of what happened to this guy. And Which the we fact never that, really find out. Well, we kind of do during that monologue yeah, I to think a degree. Do. Yeah. And, and, and I think that the fact that what happened to him is absolutely nothing I would have ever imagined is the reason why he's out there uh, is why I like this so much. Like it just keeps going in, in directions like, Oh, now, now they're at this like, like sex show house or whatever. And like all, all this like stuff that's happening that uh, is completely, you don't know from one scene to the next where it's going to go, where it's going to take you. And it's kind of getting a little bit crazier and crazier in a, in its own very slow labored way. Uh, getting crazier and crazier. That's what I really liked about it. And uh, so to me, it's all about this character. It's all all about this Travis character and what's going on with him. And that's why I liked about it so much. I mean, I guess uh, a few questions on that. One, why does he leave again? I mean, I think the idea there in that long monologue, the way he talks about it, and that also, I, it, I think Dave is right that it is about Travis. And that is the best thing of the movie is that it's this long character study of this guy. But mm. I think what we learn in that monologue is that Travis is, is abusive and, right. um, you know, again, clearly mentally ill. And yeah. I thought that was sort of like, it's presented, that monologue is presented in a way as if it's this sort of like tragedy that we're supposed to feel even sorrier for him at that point. But that to me was like, oh, I've lost all sympathy for him. You know, he's, I, I agree with, I agree with that. He's not a good person. He, he's, you know, there's, there's, it's not a character to be celebrated in any way. But is he still that person at the end? I, I mean, mean I it seemed like they were saying this is what happened. And now he's on the road to, you know, redemption or rectifying his life. And if that's the case, why is he leaving the kid again? Well, I think the idea is that he leaves the kid because he is still that person. And he recognizes that he can't be there. He can't yeah. be part of the kid's life and be with the mother, be with Jane, because it would just lead to the same thing that happened before. And we're supposed to sort of admire him for walking away, but I didn't find it admirable at all. I didn't find that ending to be kind of bittersweet or whatever. I just found it annoying. Okay. So let me follow up then, Josh. If that's yeah. the reasoning, why would you take a kid from a clearly stable environment with two loving surrogate parents and put him back with a mom who um, has battled drug addiction, I think, and is, you know, working in a peep show to make ends meet. And that's not a that's not a commentary on any sex workers. That's just saying that her environment is clearly not nearly as stable as the environment that they ripped him from. For And he's right. just like, you need him now. You, you know, you his mama needs him. And it's like, well, it didn't I didn't get any of that. He had a great childhood, it seemed like. 
with Walton and so I don't understand how that well he he's not he's not all there I mean you know he's not making a good decision for that kid at all you know that's kind of what I took away from it is this guy has serious problems he should not have been allowed to take that kid on that road trip and that but this is what happened in this story so if that's the case I mean and again this is this is all interesting if that's the case Jane who kind of did put her life a little more together and has been contributing financially uh, to uh, Hunter's life. Wouldn't she at that point say, well, yeah, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you, but it's still better that you stay with your aunt and uncle. And like, we can have visits. I mean, it just seems like no one's using any (laughs) fucking brains. Well, we don't see what happens. I mean, the last thing we see is her first reunion with Hunter. I mean, she first, right. she spots him and then they hug and that's the end of the movie. So we don't know what may happen. No, but after it's, impl- it's implied, implied. Is it is not? implied. And I think also what's implied is that this is good. I think, Dave, that maybe the movie is presenting this as a happy ending where it doesn't feel that way. That's interesting because that's not how I took it. I, I took it as a maybe like a dark, happy ending, <laughs> like like where it feels happy, but where, you know, underneath it all, like, you know, that this is not a good thing. Like you guys, you know, clearly agree is not a good thing what's happening. And I think it knows that, but maybe I'm wrong. But that's to me what I got well, is that yeah. it knows that this isn't really happening. When you right, talk well, about that type of ending, I think of something like The Graduate where it's like clear yet subtle. And I don't think this was that at all. Yeah, I don't either. But I mean, if that's what you got from it, I mean, I'm sure you're not the only one. Um, Obviously, people love this movie. I think we're like harping on this part and we should maybe talk about some other aspects of the movie a little. I want to say, you know, throughout various episodes, I I, I end up ragging on child actors uh, for various reasons. (laughs) And I thought Hunter Carson, who is the son of L.M. Kit Carson, the screenwriter, uh, was really good in this movie. And that, that kid has this good balance of of being a kid and not quite understanding what's going on, and yet also being really savvy about the fucked up relationship uh, of his aunt and uncle and and father and mother and all of this stuff that's going on. And I thought that was a really good balance. So I, I liked his performance. I liked it too. Uh, do you want to talk a little about N- Nastasha Kinski? Because like I said, I think physically, like she's, you know, smoldering off the screen, but also just really a really great performer here. Yeah, but again, I feel like that character has had so little presence in the story up till then that her performance almost didn't matter to me because I didn't have any investment in her as a character. That's interesting. Uh, She, you know, she had a big year, 1984, Paris, Texas, Maria's Lovers, Unfaithfully Yours in the Hotel New Hampshire. So she was definitely like a star on the rise. Yeah, I haven't seen any of those. I have seen her in Cat People, though. So she's... What's that all about? (laughs) she's a cat person it's a it's a it's a remake of a, a horror movie from the 1940s is paul schrader wrote and directed it uh it's right. it's not great but uh she definitely embodies the like sexy cat-like dangerous person in that movie so yeah yeah that that is something did you see this quote about uh robbie Mueller? muller Mueller? muller i don't I'm know calling him yeah, whatever. Anyway, from Steve McQueen, the director from 12 Years a Slave. And, you know, um, right. It was a great quote. He said that Mueller presents a visual language to capture what appears to be men falling to their deaths in slow motion. Like, oh, oh, like the characters are. 
not literally. He said, yeah, the, the way he shoots, it appears yeah. to be a visual language to capture what appears to be, yes, men, the, the characters, falling to their death in slow motion. I thought that was a good quote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you can see that is that, I mean, at least the the uh, Travis character is sort of, he's not, he's not headed to any good places in right. life. But by the way, uh, another moment is when he falls asleep in his car while the kid is just like sleeping by a bank. Like that was crazy too. I I almost yeah. attributed that to like, hey, it's the eighties, and you know, uh, I, I we all had like not crazy all stuff there. You know, like in the eighties. <laughs> you know, I talk about how I used to trick or treat around my neighborhood at night, like with a bunch of other little kid friends, and it was like you would never let kids go out alone, like right now. So I'm gonna give him a pass on that one day. <laughs> You're not okay. you're not taking your daughter and leaving her outside a bank to fall asleep? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do okay. that at all. So. All right. That's good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah, I'm good. Do we want any other I mean, we talked about obviously Harry Dean Stanton this was probably the the most uh high profile role he ever had and and he's he's good. I think it's a tough part to play because you can't get a handle on really who this character is. And yet it's a study of this character. So, but I think he, he pulls it off mostly. Yeah, I would think this is definitely the most leading uh, is his big lead, but uh, I'm going to say the dad in Pretty in Pink might be a little more high profile. Yeah, maybe so. But certainly this is, I mean, I think even at the time he said he was excited to be able to play a lead part and it wasn't something that he got to do. Yeah, this was like the big role of his lifetime. I, I think right, that's true. Right. I mean, and he was already in like uh, almost 60 by the time he played this part. So, you know, he'd been a character actor for many, many years. Right. And, and, and you know, it goes into legacy. But what did he did over 100 movies, right? Yeah, he was extremely prolific yeah. and including for many, many, many years after this movie. Right. Dean Stockwell, fun actor from the 80s, right? Right. Yeah. And he, I get, I feel like he's not, he, he, he's set up as if he's like the second main character and then he just really doesn't get a lot to do in the second half of the movie. Yeah. I think he does a lot with that first half though. I think he's really good. He is. And I think that was part of the reason why I was disappointed that it shifted away from that. Mm. Yeah. The pacing of the Southwest and uh, that look kind of brought me back to uh, sex lies and videotape, you know, another movie we covered that obviously completely different story, but I thought, that was paced effectively throughout where this one, it kind of just turned too much. And um, you got the look and the feel of, of those areas really well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those desert landscapes, I think, are beautiful. You think of uh, Robert Altman's Three Women that we covered in our uh, last season, I think captures those, some of those similar looks from California rather than from Texas. But it's all the Mojave Desert. And I will say, even though I didn't like where the sort of story was going, I thought the, the peep show booths that were all like little uh, rooms from like a hotel or a coffee shop or it, it was, I mean, and they, they talked about how they didn't want to make it look like a real peep show. And that's a, they, so they built that all themselves. And like, that's not a place that really exists. There aren't peep shows like that, but I thought it was a creative representation of that kind of thing. So I oh, kind of like that. They do exist. 25 to 30 years later as like webcam studios. So. <laughs> well, right. But those are people in their actual bedrooms or homes or whatever, maybe. Um, or you're saying as studios where people said, yeah, they, yeah, they built like, studios with different looking rooms, for, right. you know, that type of stuff. Right. No, that, that makes sense. And you want to feel it, 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 it makes sense as a thing to like make or engender sort of intimacy, even in a, in a false setting. But, um, at the time that was something that didn't exist. So maybe they're ahead of their time in creating that. So mm -hmm. credit to them for that. Jason doesn't care. 
<laughs> no, I mean, I, I, mean, I think I, I, um, he's tapped out of this movie. Let's just, <laughs> let's just rate this. Do you want right. to rate this out of uh, five, uh, vacant lots in Paris, Texas? Sure. Five vacant lots. You're only getting two of them from me, Josh, two vacant lots. I didn't make the movie. Um, I'm going <laughs> to give it a two and a half. Like I said, I think I, I was more evenly distributed in my uh, lack of response to this movie. I was trying to like it and I just didn't get there. Dave, I think you're uh, you're the enthusiastic one on this. Yeah, I'm giving it a four, guys. I liked it a lot. Yeah, well, at least someone did. And and to be fair, Dave has is the majority. I mean, this movie is, again, it's it's an actual classic. It's, it's highly acclaimed. Right. We're, we're the we're the Philistines here, Jason. Yeah, this is why we got to burn more books. <laughs> okay. Well, on that note, we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Paris, Texas. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1984, we've been talking about the Cannes Film Festival Palme d'Or winner. Paris, Texas by Vim Vendors. And as we said, this is probably like the movie that people think of when they they think of Vim Vendors. Um, But certainly, thanks to the acclaim and success of this movie, he went on to be a very prolific kind of art house filmmaker. And the other movie that I think people most associate him with is Wings of Desire, the black and white film with Bruno Ganz about a fallen angel, which is from a couple of years after this and is one of the only other Vim Vendors movies that I've seen. And I really dislike that movie even more than this one, um, but it is beloved. So um, Yeah. And then in the 70s, he did a whole German um, road trip trilogy. So Alice in the Cities, The Wrong Move, and Kings of the Road. So that might be interesting to look back on. Personally, I'll, I'd rather keep uh, watching uh, Werner Herzog movies. Yeah, I, I I kind of am with you on that. But I think also like Werner Herzog, you know, and again, they both came up in this German new wave. Vendors went on to make uh, plenty of narrative films, but he also became a pretty acclaimed documentary filmmaker. And in, yeah. in recent years, I think those are his more acclaimed films. Buena Vista Social Club, which was a movie with Ry Cooter, uh, a movie called The Salt of the Earth about a, a photographer, which is one of the only other ones that I've seen and I thought was quite good. Uh, Pina, which is a film about a, a famous ballet, ballet dancer that he shot in 3D. And I think his most recent movie is actually a, a documentary that he made about Pope Francis. So an interesting, varied career. For I mean, he's uh, he's one season away from being on Cobra Kai, right? Because uh, our boy <laughs> Werner Herzog did Mandalorian. So he has to, you know, get a part in a streaming. Never mind, Josh. I don't know uh, where you're going with that. I was saying... Werner Herzog was in the pop cultural uh, phenomenon known as the Mandalorian. So Vin Benders now has to be a supporting player in a streaming pop cultural phenomenon. And I chose Cobra Kai. But the fact that I have to explain it to you, Josh, is just so disappointing. Uh, I do love the Buena Vista Social Club and I love the music in it. I haven't seen that. um, But I have, like I said, I've seen The Salt of the Earth. And I remember seeing one of his later non-acclaimed uh, narrative films, a movie called Land of Plenty with Michelle Williams at the Cine Vegas Festival in 2004. And I think they might have uh, done a tribute to him there um, and maybe showed Wings of Desire or maybe even showed this, but I did not uh, attend that. But that Michelle Williams movie is entirely forgettable. So thank goodness I brought it up. 
Well, one interesting thing I thought, Josh, was on the crew for this movie, Allison Anders, the filmmaker, was a PA, and Claire Denis was the assistant director. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, I was. I saw their names in the credits as they rolled by, and it was like, wow, those are big names. I mean, so he was certainly nurturing this kind of uh, next generation of major filmmakers as he was making this movie. Also has worked with Sam Shepard again. Uh, they collaborated on a film from 2005 called Don't Come Knocking that Sam Shepard both wrote and starred in, which I have not seen. And uh, yeah, and Vim Bender's still working. I'm not sure what he has uh, on tap, but he's certainly still a very much an active filmmaker. Doesn't he have a book of poetry out too? Could be. That sounds right. Yeah. Sounds right, doesn't it? Yeah, so. poems. We'll, we'll cover it on Awesome Poetry Year in the future. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we talked about Harry Dean Stanton, as you said, made more than 100 movies. He was an incredibly prolific character actor, uh, often playing these kind of weird old codgers, um, <laughs> possibly influenced by this being one of his most famous roles. Um, and, and he played a, a very similar kind of character in the final movie he made called Lucky in 2017, which was possibly the first lead role that he had since this movie. I'm not sure, but it was not, he usually didn't end up in the lead role. And that's, that's kind of a nice little tribute to him, that movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a documentary about him also. Have you ever seen it? I have not seen that. No, it would be worth watching. He, as we know, died a couple of years ago and, but, uh, a life well lived in the arts, sir. And isn't he like Jack Nicholson's? Weren't they like buds forever? Uh, Maybe. I can absolutely see that being the case. They seem like they'd be friends. Um, And Dean Stockwell, also a very prolific character actor. People know him mainly, I think, from Quantum Leap over time. But um, he's still alive, although he hasn't worked in the last several years. David Lynch. Come on, man. You know, Firewall movie and uh, all that fun stuff. So Twin Peaks, right? So I don't, was he on Twin Peaks? I think he's in, is he in uh, Blue Velvet maybe? Oh, I thought he was Twin long. Peaks also, but whatever. Uh, we know nothing and we suck as podcasters. Hey, I knew Quantum <laughs> Leap. Come on. Yeah, um, where, where were you on the Vim Vendor's poetry book? Um, I, I missed it. Josh, two of your favorite musicians who committed suicide, Kurt Cobain <laughs> and Elliot Smith, both big fans of this film. You too. Obviously, the Joshua Tree, they said this has influenced that. You can see that. Um, Josh, which member of you two do you think would commit suicide, if any of No, never mind. Oh, my Go God. On. We're not going to do this. No, but but you two ended up working with Vin Benders on uh, two films of his that are either named after you two songs or songs were named after them, uh, Until the End of the World and Far Away So Close, and uh, The Million Dollar Hotel, which was a movie that Vin Benders directed and that Bono wrote. I think really, yeah. Huh. So look for their next collaboration, Angel of Harlem. Right, the the movie. And uh, until the end of the world, which I have never seen, uh, was recently. If you thought this was long, until the end of the world was recently restored to its original director's cut, which is five hours long. Ay ay ay! Yeesh. And I think yeah. it's available on the Criterion Channel, and I will not be watching. That. No, thank you. Um, my favorite detail of this, however, is that Hunter Carson was the original Bud Bundy in the first Married with Children pilot. Yeah, they cut him for David Faustino. That's got to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he hasn't really had much of an acting career. I'm not sure what he's been doing. He's, he's made some short films and stuff, but I'm sure he's doing fine uh, not being Bud Bundy. Mm. Well, maybe uh, when they reboot it, he can audition again. We can only hope. <laughs> Any other legacy things you want to mention here, Jason? 
Nope, I didn't find any more musicians who committed suicide who were fans of this one. Well, that's that's good. Oh, how about this? The Scottish bands Travis and Texas both took their name from this movie. Yeah, I mean, although those are, those are oh, names wow. that are generic enough that I feel like they could have come from anything. But I um, think they were like, "Howdy, partner! I want an American band name." Travis <laughs> just came out with a new album. It's pretty good, guys. There you go. All right. Dave, do you want to mention anything on the legacy? I feel like, you know, we got to give you the last word here to defend this. Yeah, I, I don't really uh, have a legacy. It was kind of its own thing in a way. I don't know. Um, I got nothing. All right. <laughs> Dave's got nothing. Dave wraps yeah. it up strong, like always. <laughs> yep. uh, that's Paris, Texas. And that's this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on the social media. You can, Josh. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome uh, Jason me. <laughs> Jay Harris Comedy on Twitter. Go for Jason.com. Uh, not awesome at all. No. Uh, I am at JoshBellHatesEverything.com, which may have some stuff on it soon. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod. And don't forget about our Patreon, where we have a whole bunch of bonus content. It's called Produced by David Rosen. It's got content from my music career, as well as Piecing It Together, some awesome movie year bonus content. And if we get five new subscribers, Josh and Jason will watch that five-hour Vin Vendors <laughs> movie and do an episode on it. Of course, the yeah. Patreon is a perfect thing to subscribe to if you're walking through the Mexican desert alone <laughs> and thirsty. That it is. Oh, it so, is. Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, guess who's having a moment this year? It's David Byrne and the Talking Heads. They're they're timeless. They're amazing. So we're going to cover for our documentary, one of the most important music documentaries ever made, Stop Making Sense, The Talking Heads. So tune in next time for Stop Making Sense. And thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Adios, y'all.